Welcome to the Joy of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James Taylor. On this podcast, we explore the passion and purpose of leadership. And we do so by talking with recognized leaders who do not merely have jobs, but men and women who have been called to their chosen sphere of influence. All right, great. Well, hey, listen, so let's talk a little bit. Um, you know, in, in this podcast, we talk a lot about just the joy of leadership. And so I think, I think a lot of times, frankly, I think leaders can, uh, or the role of leaders can get a bit of a negative perception. Mm. Uh, there's even a, even a movement afoot, which I, I think has been heightened during the COVID time of where people are actually stepping out of their leadership experience, in many cases in their prime. Uh, because I, I, I think there was a, a lot of, I think there were a lot of lessons learned during COVID about kind of that work-life balance, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you've had some remarkable leadership experiences. And so kind of walk me through just a little bit about what are some of your leadership roles that you've had already. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, so I say the first time I became kind of a official on paper leader, uh, would have been at Bank of America. Um, and I led a, a group of people that did strategy work and business development and channel integration is what I would call it. Uh, that role actually took me to another role within the company that I think I led about 20 folks and 15 of them were probably senior vice presidents, vice presidents. So mm-hmm. at a high level, um, looking at, you know, just some broad, uh, national type of strategies and work. And so that was a lot of fulfillment in terms of just the academic part of it. Um, I think beyond that, um, I've been on pastor search committees, kind of chairing that. I've had the pleasure of uh, chairing the board here at Hebron Christian Academy. Um, I have been on the planning and zoning board. I've had a couple of different uh, opportunities to lead uh, different groups of people, different levels of people, a lot of variety of people. And I think a leader... Uh, who has recognized skills like yours, you tend to lead in every corner of your life, you know, and that's and in, in my time knowing you, that's certainly true of you. It's like every place you are, you're also leading, oh, which you. is a blessing and a curse, isn't it? I was going to say, yeah, yeah it, sometimes you want to kind of, I've, right. I've had to actually tell myself and be intentional about just step back. Right. Don't right. be the first to speak. Don't right. do this. Don't do that. It makes me appreciate anonymity, like when I'm on vacation or whatnot, when you don't have to worry about those things. <laughs> All right. right so, tell, so, so a lot of experience in the banking world, uh, but now you've rolled to my favorite fast food place, uh, which is Chick-fil-A. So tell us a little bit about your leadership roles there at Chick-fil-A, a cutting edge organization uh, that's doing some remarkable things. So tell us a little about a little bit about your leadership. Yeah, so um, just a total God story on how I went from banking to the quick service restaurant business. Um, but it has been such a blessing. Uh, Chick-fil-A is a company like no other. And I think God knew me uh, well enough to know that had I started there, I would have never appreciated it like I do now. Uh, having spent 20 years somewhere else. Um, But from a leadership perspective, so I'm actually an individual contributor um, on paper. Uh, I influence uh, in a lot of different ways. So I'm the liaison to corporate from the field. So all of our franchisee owner operators that are running the restaurants. um, So I have kind of a market that I actually support them and their teams. Um, So what's your region? 
So my region is actually southeast. All the so, whole southeast. So no, wow. there's fi- no. In fact, um, just the state of Georgia. There are five of us okay. that cover the state of Georgia. So I have two Atlanta DMA operator teams. I cover Columbus, Georgia, as a DMA as well as Augusta, Georgia. So so during the during the whole COVID uh, issue, uh, it was remarkable to see how Chick Fil A, uh, way ahead of the market. I mean, frankly, they're still ahead, but but during COVID, it was they were glaringly ahead in how the business model was reworked mm-hmm. from a sit-down restaurant mm-hmm. to being only drive-through, and that success has been hailed from every corner of, of society. Tell us a little bit about how do, how does a decision like tr- that transpire in in an organization as large of as yours? Yeah, um, I, I don't want to sound like this is just so basic, but I do think God's hand on, like, I think about so many um, situations that I've been in as well as others, and and there's stories about it in the Bible, right? Like, God equips along the journey. So, you've got a destination, and and you never stay at that destination for long, but I think the pandemic, of course, took everyone by surprise, but along the way, this journey um, that Chick-fil-A had had years and years before is really becoming very, very operationally adept at the drive-through, and I would say that the business probably, chain-wide, was north of 50% of our business was done through the drive-through. So a lot of focus on the drive-through. Um, and so God was like equipping us, I think, along the way. One of our core values is, um, you know, really thinking about the future. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, to pursue what's next. And so I think our leadership is very mindful about innovation, um, not from just a product perspective, a process perspective, but technology. And so if you, what we call IPOS, so the folks that are standing outside taking orders before you get to the box, that was something that they had been rolling out years and years before. Um, It might not have gotten 100% adoption because it's hard. It's hard um, from a team member experience. It might not always be the thing that they really want to do, especially if it's hot or if it's raining or whatever the case might be. But I do think that... um, we made it extremely um, attractive to go ahead and like, hey, let's be on the forefront of this. Let's do this. Let's go ahead and like adopt it. Like we talk a lot about pioneering with our operators. And so they are the pioneers. And a lot of what we do um, across the chain has been developed and created by them because they're the closest to it and they know what is the best. Um, So I think the pandemic hit and it was like, okay, we have all the tools. And most of everybody had been already driving toward it and working toward it. And so it was just like, okay, it's game on. And let's. And then during the pandemic, I think um, that things got even more uh, solidified. I think their operators figured out how do we do it more efficiently, more effectively? How do we, you know, our corporate purpose is to, um, to, uh, to uh, be a positive influence on everyone who comes into contact with Chick-fil-A, and to glorify God by being faithful steward of all that he's entrusted in us. And I think that when you think about that, how do you do that in a 10-second, you know, time frame that you have versus someone that might be dining in with you for 45 minutes? So really trying to rethink what hospitality looks like, uh, rethink what the business model needs to be. Curbside has become a huge, huge thing where you use your app, 
you sit in a parking spot, right? And someone actually brings that Mm -hmm. food out to you. So innovating and really kind of um, adjusting as we went. So I I love the fact that you've now mentioned two core values uh, of Chick-fil-A. And so those core values are really driving those kinds of decisions. If there's anything that I I really saw during the pandemic, it was that uh, organizations that that were weak, their weaknesses were magnified. Organizations that were strong, they were, those strengths were magnified. And we really saw those, those pieces take place. Um, the, the organization that I'm a part of here with the school, we have thrived during this period. We've really made, uh, made sure that we are very data-driven and made sure to pass on that story to our people. At Chick-fil-A, you guys made some decisions. So, so as a, a big part of leadership is being a change agent. So walk us through, like, so, so the... The changes that took place from going from a dine-in to to curbside, is that a top-down decision? It sounds as though what you're saying is those decisions were, were really kind of largely being made by the actual owners and operators, and then and then those decisions were being adopted on the corporate level as well, or at least enhanced on the corporate level. How, how does that work? Because change is such a big part of leadership, yeah. and I think we've We've, we've been living in a test uh, situation yeah. for a couple of years now. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So tell, tell us a little bit about that change process. Yeah, so um, I, think it's, I think it's absolutely the most beautiful partnership I've seen. So I've been part of organizations that it is always a top-down approach. And then if you know, folks in the field or people that are closest to it have an idea, then you can certainly, I think there's companies that are more open and others that are not as open. Um, Chick-fil-A, because our business owners, like they're true entrepreneurs. Like if, if anyone that's listening to this loves the Chick-fil-A sauce, that was actually developed by an operator. Huh. So it was, was not it done in our product and menu corporate offices, no. Um, but I think because we have such amazing leaders and entrepreneurs that are running the restaurants, um, at the end of the day, like I think there's so much that comes from them and we adopt it. Um, and, and now that as we're growing, I think there's a lot of... Um, a lot of additional due diligence that has to happen, like just it's more rigorous, right, to just mm-hmm. make sure it's scalable as well. So I think it was a lot easier to be a little bit more nimble back when we were a little bit smaller. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of ideas come from operators and we end up adopting them um, at, from from an organizational standpoint. And then we do a lot from an organization like enterprise level and then it goes, it cascades down as well. Um, so a couple of items that you mentioned. So... Um, in terms of like closing dining rooms, going to drive through only, that was a corporate decision mm-hmm. um, and driven by regulations and right. you know all of CDC, all of that. Um, the fact that you went onto a restaurant parking lot and saw cones and right. instead of two lanes, it became three or four lanes, um, uh, t- turning three curbside spots to the whole parking lot is now curbside and it's numbered with, you might have seen, you mm-hmm. know, pay, uh, buckets and sand and all of that. Those were all decisions that our entrepreneurs, the operators made. So they realized, hey, I can leverage all of these spots that are not being taken up by cars with dine-in customers and make them additional drive-through lanes becoming more efficient and more effective and being able to get to more guests. So I would say that, you know, I wouldn't give it a percentage because that would just be something I'm picking out of the air. But there is quite a lot of um, push and pull, give and take. And and I think we really believe in uh, another core value is that we're better together. 
And so really leveraging the strengths of our entrepreneurial business leaders, as well as the folks that are in the corporate office. We hear, we hear in kind of business terminology, you know, this idea of top-down leadership and that it's looked at as a detractor, uh, as though the alternative is bottom-up leadership. Mm. And, and it doesn't, it really, mm. it doesn't work that way, right? right? And we read business, I mean, I read business books sometimes, and I, I often wonder, like, I wonder if that person's ever actually been a leader, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like there has to be this symbiotic relationship relationship that a decision is being made on the corporate level, but the implementation and maybe the skill set of the implementation of excellence Mm -hmm. is happening on that operator level, which I think, I think is beautiful. It is. So this points towards one thing that that I I have always loved uh, about the Chick-fil-A organization. uh, And frankly, I've been dying to ask you this question (laughs) is about training. So, so, uh, you know, it's the only place where you, where you go, where every single time I order, you know, a a number one, uh, (laughs) uh, that, that every single time the person it's been, it's my pleasure. It's Mm. my pleasure. And everyone who's been to a Chick-fil-A, you know, that that's how they, how does the training take place where that kind of minutia that I think a lot of organizations don't get that in depth in what that pro, what that process looks like. Yeah. How does that training look like? How does that transpire yeah. to to really develop a corporate culture where every employee has a a distinct desire to please yeah. and to help? How how does that take place? What does that training look like? Yeah, so I'll actually break it down into two parts. I think you you touched on culture, so corporate culture. So Truett and Dan, Kathy. Um, so I think Dan was really all about the second mile service, and it's it's biblically based, mm-hmm. right? Someone asked you to go one mile, go two, right? Um, and so I think the from a corporate perspective, like we have hospitality strategies, and that might look like X, Y, Z, um, and and you are going the extra mile. My pleasure, I think, um, from what I understand, I wasn't with the company at the time, but Truett Kathy um, said, hey, we want to elevate our level of hospitality and service to our guests. So even that, I think, you know, guests versus customers, right? Um, but at the end of the day, I think it took a while to take hold. Like, it, it was, to make that shift wasn't easy, and to do it, you know, chain-wide wasn't easy, but I think he was relentless and just really wanting um, everyone to adopt that. Um, in terms of training at the restaurant level, which is really where the beauty is, right? Like you, you can have great strategies and it'd be pretty and you roll it out in, in a very effective way at the end of the day, if it's not adopted in That's the right. restaurant, right. you don't get to see it. So um, I think where the beauty happens is in the restaurants, our franchisee model is very different from every other franchisee model. Um, our operators are very involved in their business um, and they own that business. And so the fact that they're involved, that they're there, they care, genuinely care about those team members. Um, I think that they are caring about the team members so that the team members then can care for their community and the guests that they're serving. Um, And so that training is really happening at the restaurants. Um, And so I think there's a lot of, you know, on the spot coaching, there's certainly equipping along the way. I think there is um, encouragement. I think there's recognition, all of that. But they're so involved in that uh, day-to-day operation 
they're investing in the lives of these people because that is a lot. I mean, many of the operators I serve and partner with, they look at Chick-fil-A, the restaurant, as a platform to be able to do much bigger things than just sell chicken. Mm -hmm. Um, And Truett Cathy said it. He said, we are in the people business and we also sell chicken. That's great. So the owner-operator model mm-hmm. is really what determines that. So, so, the, so that your employees are seeing that being lived out by an owner-operator. Unlike a, a lot of other restaurants, you can't own 37 Chick-fil-A's. Right. You're going to own a Chick-fil-A, maybe two, I think, in some situations. At the most three. Most three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're going to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And I certainly have been waited on many times by the person who I think must be the owner, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and a lot of times they're making their way through the restaurant. And and you see uh, that attitude, that mindfulness being embodied. Mm -hmm. You see it being lived out, which is, which is pretty exciting. It's beautiful. You know, it's, it's, it's great to see. And it goes all the way up to the Cathy's. Right. So I was absolutely amazed when I uh, joined the company and went down to what we call the support center. Mm-hmm. We actually don't call it headquarters or corporate or anything like that. Um, it's just easier, like when you're talking with people outside of Chick Fil A. Um, but uh, I remember going through orientation, someone coming in and they were taking us around and doing a tour. the The most humble man I've probably met, and I ended up finding out it was one of the Kathy family okay. uh, members. Um, I've traveled with Dan before, and we'll go out uh, on a plane, and as you're walking into a restaurant, he is picking up trash, mm. and you, if, if you see people picking up trash outside and just regular plain clothes, it's probably the owner-operator, because mm-hmm. um, they really emulate the leadership, um, and that was kind of what was... Um, uh, role modeled for them, but at the end of the day, they they steward this opportunity in such a wonderful way. And when you look at that opportunity as stewardship, like everyone believes, like I want to leave it better than I found it. And so I think that permeates throughout the culture of Chick Fil A. And and that that spreads like that's just that's catchy, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know that that you want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. So so this does point out, uh, you know, may, maybe. Uh, what they're most famous for, but, but, but maybe also what is a, it can be controversial in mm-hmm. our current society is the idea of being a distinctly Christian organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wish that I had only learned this lesson once, but I have driven into Chick-fil-A multiple times on a Sunday <laughs> and, uh, and had to remind myself that they're closed on Sundays. Uh, and, and really had, you know, so, so that, that idea of, the, of, of a faith-based, of a truly Christian organization, how, how is that received in a corporate world that is fairly distinctly unchristian. Yeah. Uh, how how does that how does that received and and how how does that permeate the culture as well in the organization? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I've I've always said like there's not a Christian business, right? Like a business can't be Christian. Um, now the principals, the ones running it, the owners, the workers, they can be faith based and Christians. Um, and obviously, the Kathy family are very. Um, I mean, they're little Christs. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's to say that they're very religious. I know religion has different connotations these days. Um, but yeah, they live it out. Um, just humility, uh, the decision-making process, living for, I mean, like it's just genuine. Um, they are the real deal. Um, and so I think from a culture perspective um, and a, a a business that is owned by, I think, one decision they have made certainly is um, they want to stay private because they want to be able to make right. the decisions that that they feel um, align with their faith. Uh, one of those, you know, things that 
they are that as a non-negotiable is obviously um, being closed on Sundays. And that really started with Truett Cathy and his brother when they opened up their first restaurant. Um, it was 24 hours. It was right across mm. from the Ford plant um, downtown, like I think in that hateful area. And um, they were just tired. Like, I mean, you know, you had, and it was a great business, you know, being across from the Ford plant, you had all shifts, right? right. So people were coming in to eat at all times of the day. By that seventh day, they were just so tired. That's, that's when they made the decision to close. And then obviously, because you know that the Kathy families are Christians, uh, Bible believing, Jesus following, um, they want to allow their folks to be able to go worship on Sundays. And want to keep the Sabbath holy, but it started with like, yeah, just physically they were tired and they wanted to have a day of rest. Um, so how does that play out? Like with, you know, within a world where you don't, you know, have, I, I think there's been a lot of controversy, um, when you go outside of like the business practices, um, it has helped Chick-fil-A. I think I came on right after the whole Huckabee, you mm-hmm. know, thing. Right. Um, but I'd say that there are, like, you, you, you tend to find those others that are like-minded um, where you can actually partner up with. I think in a business world where they're not like-minded, it's a wonderful opportunity to, um, to be a city on a hill. Right. Um, and they may not always understand the practices, but I think... The reality—I don't think you ever. I think it's like our faith. You don't, you don't like force it down someone's throat, and I don't think you like you know charge ahead like this is my soapbox. I think it has to be genuine, and so you think about it just morally, right? Like who is gonna, who's gonna um, disagree with like, hey, we want to be hospitable. We want to serve people. I mean, I think that's what you lead with. And, and they're being hospitable and serving everyone. Everyone. Right, everyone. Uh, inclusion, yes. Right. And so, so I know that they have also made an enormous impact on our country and the world. Uh, they have taken their wealth and made sure to start kids camps and, and, and a lot of different... Talk a little bit about uh, how Chick-fil-A has chosen to take their, their corporate earnings, their wealth, mm-hmm. and really impact the lives of of people all over our country and our world. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think, um, so we do have the foundation and I think the foundation is the kind of the arm by which I think there's a lot of charitable giving. Um, They are very focused on different um, objectives that, that those, that is going to fund in terms of what they're going to support. I think the Kathy family is immensely generous with their money as well. um, All their resources really. Um, So you've got, that as well, that's apart from the business. The business, um, so we don't, you know, we don't have a single cash register at 5200 Buffington. And so the business, like in terms of corporate, um, doesn't have any money to really just, well, I shouldn't say it that way. What I would say is what you're seeing the generosity of is um, the foundation as an organization, the Kathy family, and then your operators. Mm-hmm. So your owner operators in the local communities, um, that is their business. And so they can be as generous as they want. And all of the ones I have had the pleasure of serving are very generous people. So I, 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 I love the idea of taking our faith, and, and this show is distinctly distinctly faith-based, taking our faith and really applying it to the real world 
and and letting that authentic faith speak loudly uh, in relationship to love and caring and accepting rather than kind of having this legalistic kind of figure, finger-wagging mm-hmm. culture, right? Yes. And, and I, I frankly think the world is clamoring for it. In this, in, you know, in this society, I think we've almost lost the art of being able to disagree and still really like each other. And so there, there's this mindset where if we disagree over uh, small things or large things, uh, right now, like, like gender is a really big issue that I'm working on uh, all of the time in, in school culture uh, and, and really understanding what that feels like, but to do so with love and care mm-hmm. that I think that, that, that Chick-fil-A embodies, they really live out this mindset of taking your faith uh, not apologizing for it, truly living it out, which I think the world is also looking mm-hmm. for, but but doing so in a way that is inclusive, that, mm-hmm. that they're really caring for for each and every person. And, yeah. and I frankly think that's something that's really lacking. Uh, Chick-fil-A has done a great job of really understanding what that is. Are there certain management principles that you, ha- that you utilize on a daily basis? Are there certain kind of nuggets of learning? Uh, you've experienced banking and, and, and now uh, Chick-fil-A as well had an unbelievably successful career. You manage a lot of people. Are there certain nuggets of leadership uh, and management that you that you have the opportunity to pass on to us today as well? Yeah, uh, before I answer that question, I think, yes, I think everyone is looking for authenticism, uh, authentic yeah. leadership and faith. And so I have been so, uh, I have admired the the caliber of people I get a chance to work with at Chick-fil-A. And I think what you guys see on a day-to-day basis is truly what our operator owners are doing in their community. Um, And I think they're caring for their people um, in such a, and I think that inclusiveness becomes easy, right? right? Like I think some people might say, well, if you believe X, then why would your practice include Y? Um, And I think when you think about what Jesus said, you love everybody, um, and if you go back to that corporate purpose again, which is to glorify God right. by being a faithful steward, but then it's to have a positive influence. Well, having a positive influence to all that is That's right. right. So it's not just the ones that believe Jesus or right. the ones that think exactly like right. I do, the ones that come to church. Um, so anyway, so I wanted to kind of But our touch world on that. tells us that's not possible, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and yet we see it being lived out. And I promise we'll still get to your question, I promise. <laughs> but, but, but the, you know, one, one of the pieces that I have the privilege of doing, like really the enormous privilege, is working with young people at their most impressionable times during their, mm-hmm. during their lifetime, their mm-hmm. middle school and high school years. Brain's not fully developed, we know, until around age 25. Uh, my wife sa- might say maybe 52 or 53 for me. I don't know. But, <laughs> it but was definitely cer- <laughs> 30 plus for me. <laughs> but, but, you know, they say brain development takes till, till the age of 25. So we're, we're here at some of the most impressionable times. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the mantra that, that I continue to, to, to really uh, espouse to our students is this mindset of taking the giftings that God has given you. You're going to take those areas where, you, where you're great at, you know, and there's always a career that matches that skill set. Mm-hmm. But then to, to not apologize for your faith, Take your faith right into that yeah. into that market, so that so that you can be in full time ministry, and be a corporate executive at Chick Fil A, or you can be in full time ministry and you're a physician or you're a teacher right. or what. So taking that faith in there unapologetically. 
but also with love and grace. Mm-hmm. And, and love and grace is something we really see. I see it emulated in your life every time I'm around you. Uh, I definitely see it through your corporation. And I think our world is really longing for mm-hmm. that, you know? Um, so anyway, back to strategies. Give, yes. us, give us some nuggets of learning on, uh, on what you've learned about management. Yeah, so um, I think it's hard to talk about leadership and management without talking about self First, not self-absorbed, self-centered, none of that, but self-awareness. So I think really understanding who you are, um, what your purpose is, like what God has purposed for me to do, and then how I fit into the bigger picture. I think that gives me a really healthy view of like who I am. So no matter how, how successful I become, um, it's a healthy view, right? Because like it doesn't matter how successful because I'm like, a small part of like this grander plan that God has. And I'm just humbled to be able to be used. That's right. So I think you have to start there. You have to know, okay, if that is my purpose, then how do I, um, I, I've always kind of said like, what is the highest and best use of me? Um, and so Mm. I kind of say that about everybody, like for folks that I have led in the past, like what is the highest and best use of this person? Because everyone comes with very, um, various degrees of skills they come with a very unique perspective and that's all based on their life experiences and and um and kind of where they are and who they are so like what and and different strengths and weaknesses so like what is the highest and best use and trying to determine and maximize the potential Um, but from a leadership perspective i'd say i love this opportunity like the nuggets um is like collaborating like mm-hmm. I'm a very collaborative leader and so just this this power of multiple minds versus the one um, and so that's the joy for me from a leadership perspective of like how do I um, have influence and impact with the role that I've been given today and um, I think influence is all about the people that you're leading because um, I think you have significant amount of influence. And, and it's a wonderful opportunity, but it's a great responsibility as well. That's right. And so taking that very seriously um, and then and, and not doing it just on a professional level. So Chick-fil-A has been such a wonderful company because I think they want you to bring your whole self. Uh, they care about the person um, and not just what you bring to the table as a, an employee. Um, so I think just not professional only, but from a personal uh, perspective as well. So relationships and results influence with the people. And then it's the impact of like, how can you collectively impact a broader, like if I think about all of the successes I've had or accomplishments I've had, and I've had a lot of opportunities that God has blessed me with, and they've been interesting and fun and, um, and great. I sum it all up, put it on this end of the scale, and then think about all of the achievements from leading a group of people, and it far, far, like, outweighs the other, right? So, like, that impact, the ability to truly leverage um, the strengths of different people come together uh, in a unified way, aligned on specific objectives together and problem solving together and then driving results that way and then liking each other at the that's end That's right. It. I yes. think that's the key. And, and, and that's really one of the beautiful parts of leadership. Uh, there are stressful components to every job. 
It, it, you know, you, you have the privilege of working for an organization that is obviously receptive and based on Christian values. I have the blessing of working in an organization where it is a Christian organization. A lot of folks don't have that opportunity uh, to be able to work in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. And yet they're still an, an avenue, an agent of change because of that collaborative approach. And, uh, and, and that makes the I mean, to me, that makes the, the bad days uh, seem still okay. Yes. You know, the, even yes. when we're going through challenges, we recognize kind of that big picture, you know. Uh, so I, I love that from a corporate entity. All right, let me jump into into some personal stuff. Okay. Uh, UGA grad. Yes. And both of your girls are UGA grads, yes. right? And, go dogs. Uh, go dogs. And so, <laughs> Although I have to say, like, this little disclaimer is that I did get my executive MBA at Georgia Tech. I, so I heard that. It's go still, jackets. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but go dogs. Go jackets. <laughs> and and uh, and so, what what caused you to you know have that decision to choose UGA? Uh, tell us a little bit about your background on and because I I've heard the story before, but I'd love to hear you know to share that story a little bit here. Uh, t- your story is super unique. Tell us a little bit of story about kind of what brought you to this this area and 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 then ha- why you chose UGA. Yeah, I'll give you a try to give you a cliff. Uh, notes version. Um, I'm, I don't know. Young people may not. Is, are there still Cliff Notes? They're, well, they know what the reference is. Okay. It's now. I think. I think now it's a historical <laughs> reference. <laughs> I still say Cliff Notes version. Okay. Of, yeah. Right. If they're under twenty, they might have to question. A summary. It. That's right. Um, so my family and I immigrated to the United States when I was six. And um, so Philly, and then by way of Philly, Chicago, um, I won't go into all of the details of what brought us to um, Georgia, but I remember when my parents came to Georgia, we uh, were looking at different um, cities. We landed in Dacula, which is what I thought it was, Dacula. (laughs) Uh, It was a single A school. Um, I think I had 80. I came from a school in a suburb of Chicago. I think we had like 1100 in my ninth grade class, freshman class, uh, came here in Decula uh, in my sophomore year of high school, and there were like 80 some odd people mm. in my class. So it was quite a shock right. um, on all levels. And um, when my parents bought the house in Decula, I could have gone to North Gwinnett, I could have gone to Buford, and I could have gone to Decula. And I remember saying, anywhere but Decula. <laughs> and um, as, as, uh, as uh, fate would have it, but it's truly the sovereignty of God. Um, Decula was the only one that would come pick me and my brother up on a bus. And so Decula it was. And uh, the first week of school, I remember being asked two questions. I mean, multiple, multiple times. The first one was, um, do you know Mary and Martha Chan? And I'm like, by the third person, I'm like, who is Mary and Martha Chan? They're like, oh, well, they're these Chinese twin sisters that we went to kindergarten with. You know, now that, you know, we're sophomores in high school now, so that's been a long time. Right. Um, but very non-diverse. Um, and I remember thinking, not even the same country. <laughs> but, we didn't mention what country you emigrated from. Oh, yes. Seoul, Korea. Thank you. Yes, South Korea. Um, and so I remember letting them know, no, I do not know the Chan sisters. And then the other question, though, I think that is just fascinating that I got asked so often was will you go to church with me so Hebron Church had such a huge influence on this Mm. community and um, to the point where like I was really not churched before then and um, so it kind of I thought oh gosh is this a cult I mean like are they gonna (laughs) 
sacrifice me? Like, I just wasn't sure why is everybody asking me to come to church? Right. Um, and so I finally did. And, and obviously, I mean, that's my salvation story mm-hmm. is having gone to Hebron church, um, really hearing the gospel for the first time. I did walk the aisle a couple of times, but my freshman year of college is when I truly came to know the Lord and got saved. And so that whole, you know, you kind of look back and you see God's, you know, um, fingerprint on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I just wonder like, would I have come to know Christ? Would I have been churched? Had I gone right. to Roswell or somewhere else? Not to say that there's not Christians right. there, but that influence I don't think was there at the school like it was here at Tequila. Um, and then, uh, Georgia was just by happen chance. I mean, everyone else was applying to Georgia. So right. I was like, Oh, well, I'll just, and, and back then it was not Right. Nearly Back as then hard. you could really get in. <laughs> <laughs> you really had to have good grades now, but right. back then you didn't. So I uh, went to Georgia and, and I did, I wanted to cheer there. And so I, that was kind of my, my primary goal. Um, didn't make it my freshman year um, and worked that whole next year on some gymnastics and tumbling and made it my last year. So like achieved my dream of doing that, graduated in three years came out, wanted to, I've always been one of those that like, I'm ready for the next thing, whatever the next thing is, I want to go. So I need to get married. I need to have kids. It was just, and I remember, um, one of my teachers at Decula, Dotney said to me, um, Nancy, you need to just enjoy where you are. Mm. And that really never, um, took hold. I don't think like I didn't give that any serious thought until after I graduated college had my first child, and I remember thinking, I'm so always speeding, mm-hmm. fast-forwarding to that next thing. I'm not enjoying the moment. Right. Um, and so that's when I really started being intentional about, okay, yes, you can have ambition, and I think it's great to be ambitious, um, but I think not recognizing the goodness of God and being grateful for mm-hmm. what he is blessing you with now, right. I think is such a... Um, just, it's just a shame, right? So uh, I think that that's probably comes with years, right? For, uh, that, that, that idea of the work-life balance. I have a phrase that I say all the time. I say, be where you are. Mm. And I, I think I lived a long time not being where I was. I was at a location, but I'm already, I'm checking my phone and I'm doing that, you know. So when I'm at work, I'm at work. Mm. I work super hard. I work long hours, many days. But when I'm at home, I'm home. And uh, uh, people around here will kind of joke a little bit because if they really, really need to get in touch with me, they're probably calling my wife. Uh, just because I really try to be where I That's am. Awesome. I don't think I've done that well. Uh, awesome. for, for a long time. And so this idea of being where you are, and that's what you're talking about, mm-hmm. that idea of that, that work-life balance. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, you know a little bit of my story. I immigrated here in 88 from Canada. Uh, so we're two immigrants, yes. you know, here. I love that, right? Oh, it's the yeah. American story. So... Um, Tell us a little bit of, did, have you experienced any challenges uh, immigrating from another country, also being a female? Have you had any challenges in the corporate structure, or has that been an asset? Yeah, um, so I think it was an asset when I was in school. I tell the story, and people laugh all the time when, when I was younger. Um, I would go the first couple, especially in high school, uh, I'm sorry, in college, where they didn't have like strict attendance. Right. I would go in and sit on the front row for the first like week and a half. And it's that, you know, like that, um, oh, well, there's that smart Asian right in the front. <laughs> and then I'd skip like for weeks <laughs> and then my test results would come and they'd go, okay, she's not so smart after all, you know, but, but it did help me. Um, I think, you know, from a business perspective, I think challenges, I mean, I, I, I obviously remember 
um, and this was in downtown Chicago when we actually moved to Chicago. Um, I was in uh, elementary school learning English in a stairwell, mm. right? So like it was a, probably a four-story high school. And so um, when everyone else would go to what they called language arts at the time, um, they would pull me out of class and, and one person and I would, I would learn English. Right. And um, so, you know, I, I obviously remember getting picked on and made fun of. I kind of look at some pictures of me in kindergarten and, um, and actually, I guess, in second grade and the way my mom dressed me, I probably deserved a lot of that picking. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, I do remember all of that. Right. Um, but I grew up kind of predominantly with a lot of Caucasian like that's I didn't there. It wasn't a big Asian community mm-hmm. where we would go. And certainly here in Tequila, my right. brother and I were the only Asians in middle school and high school. Um, so all that to say, like I always kind of just thought of myself as a Caucasian until I would look in the mirror and then I'd right. go, oh, I look different. Um, in business, I think more people were surprised about my height than they were that I was Asian. Or maybe they were just being very polite because I did a lot of business over the phone, okay. you know, because it was a lot of national roles that I had. And so then when we would finally meet, they'd be like, oh, you're, you're so much shorter than I imagined. But then I'm thinking, yeah, you probably didn't think I was Asian either. Um, but anyway, so that's always been kind of comical. Um, I do remember getting coaching pretty early on in my career at Bank of America because um, I was one of the only remote leaders um, in our department. Uh, just didn't want to move. And so I was doing a lot of business by phone, and we weren't doing a lot of the Zoom calls at the time, uh, the video conferencing. And um, I think certainly being younger, certainly being a female, um, and I think, you know, maybe being an immigrant, knowing that you have, like, these really high expectations mm-hmm. that you have to to achieve for your parents. Right. Because my parents always said, we came to America because of you guys. We wanted you to get the education and be successful in America. And so you have this kind of, like, this always this underlying pressure of, like, man, I've got to make it for my parents to feel like this was a good, you know, good return on their investment, right. you know. Um, but I think there was this eagerness. And so the way I would communicate, I think, was it, I spoke very fast Mm -hmm. and I spoke very loud trying to you know like just trying to get it across and so I got feedback early on that um, you know it's never great at the moment to get constructive criticism but it was one of the best um, advice I got was just hey take a deep breath slow down and that will come across more confident Mm -hmm. versus you sounding too eager Um, so I think all of those kind of contributed to it was probably more difficult than had I been you know um, I don't know maybe grown up here Mm -hmm. um, looked the same as everybody else and and yet those things also become part of our story that's right you know it's amazing for me to see just how I look back in hindsight and just you've already mentioned it three times uh, on, on our show right now the idea of just God's hand that is constantly directing us, you know, and and just shaping our path and, and allowing us to see where we're supposed to go. Was it your intention to go into business earlier, early on in life, or were you pursuing something medical or something else? What 
Were you pursuing something else? Oh, yes. I am Korean, Asian after all. So my parents, when I went to college, told me I could be a lawyer, a doctor, or a pharmacist. I don't know why <laughs> pharmacist, but that was the third choice. And I, um, when I got to Georgia, I had decided I wanted to be the next, um, oh, what was her name now? She was the only Asian TV anchor. Mm-hmm. Um, married to... I know exactly who you're oh, talking I can about, see, and I'm I can missing see her. her name. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Married to Mari Povich Maury or whatever. Povich, yes. Yeah. What is her name? Um, but anyway, I wanted to be the next, you know, uh, her, whatever her name was. And, um, and they had good journalism school, so that's what I was going to pursue. About uh, one, one semester in, my parents said, hey, our friends are telling us that you have to really know someone in this industry if you want to be like a TV anchor or reporter. So um, you need to change your major. And you can be a doctor, a lawyer, or a pharmacist. And so I was like, oh, I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. Okay, I, I guess I'll be a pharmacist. Um, did that for one, like, so went into chemistry mm-hmm. and hated it. I'm very right-brained okay. um, and hated every minute of it. Did not do well. Remember telling some customers of my parents, and they went to them and said, hey, Nancy's, like, really miserable. You really probably should let her do something else. And they were like, okay. They came, oh, hey, we we were told that you didn't like what you're doing. Do you not like what you're doing? Yeah, I don't, I don't like it at all. I'm not good at it. And they said, okay, well, all right, you want to be a lawyer or a doctor? <laughs> so I decided doctor would be more of the same. So I was like, okay, I'll be a lawyer. So I became an English major because I was okay. like, okay, I that know. That was my major. Sure. I like Okay, so I did not know that. Yeah, that was my that was oh my, my first goodness. degree as well. Yeah. Okay, everyone always asks me why English, right. um, and it's because I like to read, I like sure. to write, um, and so and and so I kind of would use that as an excuse of lawyers read and write a lot. Right. So I'm gonna be an English major, um, and uh, the 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 uh, law school I heard did not like to take students straight out of undergrad, that they wanted them to get some life experiences. And so um, I decided, well, I'll take a year off, go work, and then I'll apply for law school. Planned on going to Georgia and, um, and went with my parents. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but uh, that next week after I graduated, my parents were refinancing their house. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went with them because I always translated for them in any sort of business dealings. And so I went with them, and their loan officer happened to be, again, like this is mm-hmm. God's hand in all of this, right? So happened to be the VP and second in charge of that particular mortgage banking company. And so after we got done, um, Bob Slocum said, um, so what do you do? And I said, well, I just graduated from Georgia. I'm going to take a year off work, go to law school next year. And he said, well, we'd love to offer you a job here. No and kidding. That was a mortgage company. Yes. And so I started in secondary marketing, which is a really amazing place to start. And that's how I ended up being in banking and um, mortgage banking for 20 some odd years. So that, that, that has become one of the primary themes of the show, okay. uh, the joy of leadership. And, and it's, you know, working with teenagers, I'm trying to, I try to tell them all the time, you don't need to know 17 that's steps right. ahead. That's right. uh, be faithful in your next step. Mm-hmm. And if you're faithful there, be faithful in the next step. Yes. And, and I look at, I look at my life, I had never in a million years ever thought I would be doing what I'm doing. And yet God has just orchestrated my path that yes. I really live in the center. Mm. Uh, it's just such a blessing, right? To yes. be able to live. I know you do Amen. as well. And to live in the center of what God has for you in just each step. And you've mentioned several now in anecdotal incidents where it was God's hand. He Absolutely. was directing your path. And that's kind of the beautiful part of what we what we get to do, right? Yes. We, we have this privilege of 
being able to be a small little part of what God is doing, being faithful in your management role at Chick-fil-A, my role in the educational setting, and just being able to be faithful there and to watch God's handwork. It's, yes. it's, it's frankly one of those beautiful things uh, to, to, watch, to watch God facilitate uh, what's supposed to take place. Yes. And our role is sometimes just to be along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often say, be smart enough to know you're not smart enough. Uh, that 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 if we think we're going to orchestrate everything, yes. uh, we won't. Yeah. Uh, but allowing God to do so, and then and then working super hard to make sure that we're 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 reaching that That's is right. is what we should be going for. Well, so, and I, I was just going to say related to that, and this may be some advice for someone that um, might need it. But I have found that as I look back on my life, if I'm given a lot of choices, I always pick the wrong one. Hmm. And so um, early on, I started praying, Lord, just close all the doors Mm -hmm. that I'm not supposed to walk through and open the one that I'm supposed to walk through that is like in the center of your will and just open it wide. Like, and just take, either take the choice from me or, you know, so it was just very fervently praying because I didn't want to make the wrong choice um, because I had lived outside his will. I knew what that felt like, mm-hmm. and I had lived in his will, and I knew what that felt like, and that's I wanted right. to be and there. And that's better. Yes, that's so much right. better. And so that's that's so I still pray today. Um, I'm actually there's I'm going through something right now, and I'm like, okay, God, it seems like everything leading up to it has been you, mm-hmm. um, and I feel good about continuing to move forward. But you just close that door shut, even though it looks like just this amazing opportunity. If it's not the one you want to use me at, right. then shut it completely. And that's so. a that's a beautiful way for us to for us to close our show. Uh, just the the idea of living in that in that center is better. Uh, anyone who has any years to them uh, can relate to what it means to not live there, <laughs> uh, and yet living there is better. And and just being faithful in the moment and being faithful for the next step. So Nancy Easterling, it has been such a such a privilege to have you uh, on the joy of leadership. Thank it is, you for having it's me. It's been wonderful to just do life with you the last couple of years. Yes, you were a likewise. consummate professional. I've already learned so much from you uh, in my couple of years here. And so it's been a privilege to be able to call you a friend. And uh, thank you so much for joining us on the joy of leadership. Thank you. And likewise. Thank you for joining us on the joy of leadership podcast, where we emphasize the blessings of leadership and our call to this vital role. 